Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, President Trump has said since he was elected, he wanted to bring peace to the Middle East. Peace between Israel and the Palestinians. This week, with Benjamin Netanyahu at his side, Trump unveiled his plan. The reaction in the room was elation. From the Palestinians, anger. I'll talk to President Trump's senior advisor, Jared Kushner, the man who worked for three years to produce this plan. Can this bring real peace? An in-depth interview. And black, white, brown, rich, poor, middle class, urban, suburban, rural. America is divided into identities and more divided than ever in the country's modern history. How did we get so polarized? Ezra Klein explains. But first, here's my take. The leaks from John Bolton's forthcoming book are only the most recent revelation in the impeachment process. But put together all the revelations from current and former Trump officials and compare them against a chart of public support for removing Trump from office. It looks like the EKG of someone after a fatal heart attack, a flat line. Nothing changes people's views. The story of this impeachment is the story of American politics today, polarization. It affects almost every aspect of American political life and has now been studied by scholars from many different angles. Wouldn't it be great if someone would digest all these studies, synthesize them and produce a readable book that makes sense of it all? Well, Ezra Klein has done just that with his compelling new work, Why We Are Polarized. Klein begins by explaining that polarization is actually nothing new. Americans have been divided for a long time. The policy differences in the 1950s and 60s between Southern segregationists and Northern liberals, or between free market purists and great society advocates, were actually greater than those between most Republicans and Democrats today. But back then, each party contained within it a variety of political views, which meant these differences had to be navigated and negotiated. Liberal Democrats had to temper their zeal because their political power in the Senate depended on the segregationist southern wing of the party. Since 1964, when the Democrats broke with the segregationists, obviously a good thing, the parties have sorted ideologically and policy differences have become weaponized. One mega shift that's greatly exacerbated polarization is that partisanship today is largely about identity, not policy. And identity itself is increasingly determined by demographic factors, above all, after the Obama presidency, race. The book Identity Crisis points out that until recently, 
white working-class voters were evenly split between the two parties. By 2015, they leaned Republican by 24 percentage points. And once identities are at the heart of political differences, Klein argues, facts will not change people's minds. People have chosen their parties for reasons of tribal loyalty, and a better health care bill will not alter that deep sense of belonging. This crucial insight is something Democrats in particular need to internalize. The key to gaining support among undecided voters probably lies in addressing their identity concerns rather than their economic ones. Past Democratic luminaries like Bill Clinton were masters at this sort of symbolic politics. Because of America's political geography, polarization affects the two parties differently, Klein argues. Republicans are a more homogenous group centered around white men and have a huge geographic advantage given the American electoral system. Consider that they have lost the popular vote in four of the last five presidential elections and yet won the White House in two of those cases. Democrats need to appeal to a broader coalition than do Republicans, as just a fact, in order to compete in inland states and win the Electoral College. Klein's book is powerful, intelligent, and depressing. The American political system is not a parliamentary one in which one party gains control of all branches of government and can then pursue its agenda. Power is shared between three branches with overlapping authority. The founders despise the idea of parties and imagined constantly shifting factions. In their framework, some degree of compromise and cooperation is essential to getting anything done, which is why polarization has utterly paralyzed American government. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. In November 2016, fresh from his surprising election as president of the United States, Donald Trump told the New York Times that he wanted to be the president who brought peace to the Middle East. He said he wanted his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to be centrally involved in the effort. A few months later, Trump announced that Kushner would take the lead in doing what many thought to be impossible. Israel was the second country Trump visited as president, and right by his side was senior advisor Jared Kushner. This week, Trump announced the details of his so-called peace to prosperity plan, this time with embattled Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu by his side. Notably absent from the room was the other side of the deal, the Palestinians. Indeed, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, called it the slap of the century, as opposed to the deal of the century, as Trump supporters are calling it. I had the opportunity to talk to the man behind it all, Jared Kushner, on Friday. Jared Kushner, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you, Free. So you've put out this plan on one side, the Israelis, um, most of the spectrum likes it. Uh, it does allow Israel to annex most of the settlements, almost all of them, in fact, uh, legalizing something that most uh, administrations, Democrat and Republican, had so far withheld. It allows it to annex the Jordan Valley. Um, you're asking the Palestinians to say yes. In order to get this deal, um, I'm trying to understand how you get to a yes and yes, because you have two sides to this party. So on the one side, you've given Israel a lot of this stuff. You ask a lot of the Palestinians. Um, 
And then in the last few weeks, you've, you've been pretty belligerent about them. You've said if they, if they want to screw this up like they've screwed up everything they've ever done before, tough for them, they, you know, they can't pretend to be victims anymore. I'm just trying to understand what is your strategy to get the Palestinians to say yes, because it seems like you've come out with what even the Wall Street Journal calls a pro-Israeli peace plan, and now you're berating the Palestinians. So how are they going to say yes now? Yeah, so first of all, I, th- I think we have to look at what's been accomplished over the past week. I, we've been working on this for uh, now about three years. Uh, we've studied this very carefully. And what President Trump was able to accomplish this past week is, first of all, unify Israel on a plan during an election on the most divisive issue in Israeli politics, which has never been done before. Uh, he got Israel to agree to a state with conditions that were laid out. He released a plan that was about 180 pages. I see you have it there. It's a, it's a very extensive document. I think people have actually really appreciated the, the depth. I mean, to give you some context, the Arab Peace Initiative, which was the, the, the first real attempt, which was a great attempt, was about eight lines. Uh, the next attempts that have been done were two to three pages of wordsmith, high-level concepts. But what the president did was released a 180-page, very detailed uh, roadmap that could really allow people to get this done and to live side by side in, in peaceful coexistence in a productive way. Um, the other thing the president did was, so he got Israel to agree to a state. He released a plan. And then uh, what he did is he got a map. And so in all the different negotiations, there's never been a map that's been public, that has been agreed to by a side. And I think that that establishes a basis for how do we move forward. And I'll just say that people have been trying uh, this problem for years. The the Israeli peace process, Israeli-Palestinian peace process, is probably the most complicated problem in the world. And so what we've tried to do is take a pragmatic uh, approach to it. We've tried to do it differently. And I think that for the first time, there's a real offer on the table to break the logjam. And it's really up to the Palestinians to see if they have the opportunity uh, to pursue it. Okay, that, that was a very nice set of talking points about the plan. It doesn't answer my question. You're, you've, get, you've done a plan, as I said, that the Wall Street Journal says is a pro-Israeli plan. You, you're asking a lot of the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. You're berating them. Um, why are they going to say yes? Right. What is the strategy here? Well, I think what you had here was you had a lot of the Arab countries come out and call this a very serious plan and call it a basis for negotiation. So I think that's never happened before. And I think that that will take a little while to sink in for the world. Israel's always been isolated, but you had the UK, the European Union, you had Poland, you had a lot of uh, very Austria, you had a lot of very good European countries come out uh, in favor of this. And then you had a lot of Arabic countries, whether it was Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, uh, Egypt put out a great statement. So what people were basically saying is they'd like to see this issue resolved, and this is a good framework for negotiations. The Palestinians, and again, what I've been doing has not been berating them. It's just been uh, speaking truth. What they did is they rejected this before it came out. Uh, they called for a day of rage, and they're saying, we want a state. But people who are ready to get a state aren't calling for days of rage and then marching in the streets. So uh, what we hope that they'll do is read the plan. It's a detailed document, but not try to negotiate the same way that they've done it for many years, because the way that they've done it for years hasn't led to a result. What we want to do, I'll just say one final thing, is that uh, our our intention is to lay out a framework that can make the lives of the Palestinian people better. We laid out a $50 billion uh, economic plan that will create over a million jobs, double their GDP, reduce their poverty rate by 50% if it's implemented. Uh, It got wide acclaim on the details of it. This will make the Palestinian people's lives better. And what we're expecting is leadership to engage to try to do that. If that's the objective then this is as good of a framework, as real of a framework as they've ever had. And I'll just say that, again, people on this file complain a lot. They try to find reasons why it will fail. Uh, What President Trump has done on this and what he tries to do on so many other issues is find a pathway to move forward that can make people's lives better and move problems that have been stuck in the mud for a long time. 
So let me ask you, you say you're, you're uh, promising a Palestinian state. Mm-hmm. But here's what strikes me as, um, would suggest that actually there will never be a Palestinian state according to this plan, which is on page 34, it says the predicate condition mm-hmm. to uh, a, a Palestinian state being recognized is that there must be a free press, free elections, uh, guarantees of religious freedom, uh, independent judiciary, financial institutions that are as good, transparent, and as effective as, the, as in the Western world, and the U.S. and Israel will judge whether the Palestinians have achieved this. Now, I think I'm, it's, I'm right in saying there is no, no Arab country that would meet these criteria, certainly not Saudi Arabia or Egypt, which are you know, the countries you've worked with very closely. Isn't this just a way of telling the Palestinians you're never actually going to get a state? Because there's, if no Arab country is today in a position that you're demanding the Palestinians before they can be made a state, effectively it's a killer amendment. You're saying there won't be a state. Look, I think these are basis. Are you saying that we shouldn't have these criteria? Saying, you know what, it's okay. If you don't want to respect human rights, if you want to not allow people to speak freely, if you don't want to well, have an independent... Should Saudi Arabia not be a country? Because it doesn't, well, that, doesn't, that, it doesn't have any of these. Yeah, but that's not the question that's to a debate. If you're Israel, right? And again, the question is, is how do we get Israel to make compromises? You have a territorial dispute. How did we get here, right? Israel's been attacked... Uh, many times over history, right? So in defensive wars, and through those defensive wars, they've been able to conquer territory. Since they've done that, they've been able to thrive as a, as a country. They've become a, a powerhouse militarily. They're a powerhouse uh, economically, technology-wise, and they're doing very, very well. You have the Palestinians. You have 5 million Palestinian people who are trapped under the rule that you have now. I mean, you have the, the Palestinian Authority, the leader of it, who I think is a man who does want peace. He's in the 16th year of a four-year term. So it's not exactly a thriving democracy in that regard. You have a police state. Uh, You have a situation where the people don't have the rights to thrive. When we did our conference in Bahrain, we had all the business people from around the world came to to visit. It was an amazing thing. Except the Palestinians didn't come. Well, they didn't come because their leadership basically was going around handing out flyers saying we have a bullet for anyone who wants to come to Bahrain. But but let me finish this point. The the real point that came out of that, 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 that conference was that people were saying we care about the Palestinian people. We're dying to invest to create jobs there. But nobody said that Israel was the problem. They said the problems were twofold. Number one, nobody wants to make capital expenditures in a place where there's fear of terrorism. They don't want to move their people in, and they don't want to make investments where there's no stability to the government, which means that you need to have a peace agreement. The second thing was is you need to have a good governance structure. Who's going to go in and make capital investments if you don't have property rights, if you don't have rule of law? And so you have to ask yourself, Israel's been a very convenient scapegoat for the Palestinian Authority. And by the way, it's been the unifying uh, feature of the Arabic world and the, and the Middle East for the last 70 years to deflect from a lot of the shortcomings uh, internally in a lot of these countries. But for the Palestinians, if they want their people to live better lives, we now have a framework to do it. If they don't think that they can uphold these standards, then I don't think we can get Israel to take the risk to recognize them as a state, to allow them to take control of, of themselves, because the only thing more dangerous than what we have now is a failed state. And we've seen what happened all over the Middle East when you do have failed states and the risk that, that causes to America through terror, through radicalization, and to the neighbors. Next on GPS, on Monday, Iowa holds the first contest of the 2020 election. The election itself is less than 275 days away. Jared Kushner on Donald Trump's strategy to win again. Let me ask you about the campaign, because you are now moving on to, uh, to run the president's campaign, or at least to be substantially involved in it. Um, the conventional wisdom is that the impeachment process has helped him mm-hmm. uh, net-net by rousing his base. 
I'm wondering now if impeachment, once impeachment is done with, will people not come to the conclusion that Lamar Alexander came to, which was that this was behavior that was wrong, even if it was not impeachable? And could that over time hurt the president? Yeah, I think there's just a big difference between what the voters see and what the voters want and from what the uh, what people maybe in Washington or in the media are calling for. What we've seen since the uh, impeachment started is that uh, most people, by the way, are not paying attention to it. Uh, we've seen the president's numbers go up by seven points. We got polling back last night that showed that the president's approval rating nationally was over 50 percent. It was the highest that it's been since right after the inauguration. So uh, we've seen him well, now. The regular politics average is more like 44 percent. Uh, I think it was about 46 percent. But again, everything's relative, right? Because, uh, again, there's a lot of polls that were wrong in the last election. I think our data proved to be more right than the public polls, and I think it will continue to be. What I'll also say about approval, though, is in the last election, when Mitt Romney ran, uh, 2% of the people who disapproved of him voted for him. In the last election, 15% of the people who disapproved of, President, of Donald Trump as a candidate ended up voting for him. So, look, I think his base is strong and getting stronger. Last night we were in Iowa. We had a massive crowd. We had a rally in New Jersey this week. But about 160,000 people sign up for it. I mean, the energy that I'm feeling today is stronger than what we felt at the end of the campaign last year. I think that President Trump has not lost many supporters, um, if any at all. And I think that a lot of people uh, who said, well, what's he, what's he talking about? Now he's actually done all the things he's promised. He's actually done more things than he's promised. He got done criminal justice reform, which he worked on. He didn't promise he was going to do that. He did a lot of things that he didn't even promise he was going to do. And again, the American consumer has never been stronger. He's created 7 million jobs. We have two and a half million uh, Americans that have been, that have entered in the workforce, two and a half million Americans who have been lifted out of poverty, uh, almost 10 million Americans that have come off of food stamps. The numbers are, are unbelievable, but I will say this, the more time we spend in Washington and the more the administration gets better and better at it. And the more the president has his vision for what he wants to do, he believes that the potential for this country is unbelievable. And so as we finish implementing our deregulation, our deregulation agenda, uh, our tax reform agenda, hopefully we'll do more tax cuts uh, as we you know, focus on becoming energy independent, which is critical to our nation's security, bringing down energy costs for people, uh, focusing on workforce training, training people for the future uh, economy. Uh, we have a lot of things, you know, focusing on the judiciary where the president's been very successful. The potential for making this country strong is unbelievable, and the president's been very enthusiastic about what he's been able to accomplish so far. You work at the White House, you work with the president, obviously a special relationship, but why do you think it is that so many of the people who work for him leave feeling very dissatisfied that he's done a lot of wrong things, that he asked them to do wrong things? I'm thinking of John Bolton, General Mattis, General Kelly, the Secretary Tillerson, uh, Scaramucci, I mean, I could go on. Like, it feels like a lot of people have that have that feeling. Are they all just wrong? No, I think being in the White House under this administration is a very intense experience, right? The president has increased the metabolism of Washington. Uh, he's a business person. He's not a politician. He demands results. He demands uh, that you work hard, that you deliver. Uh, what I've seen is that the cream has risen, and I'm not going to say what the word is, but that has sank. And, and what's happened is, is that uh, he cycled out a lot of the people who didn't have what it took to be successful here. And a lot of the people who have come in and been excellent uh, are not out there complaining and writing books because they're too busy working. And so uh, I think what you'll see is if you look at the results that this administration has produced, whether it's on all the foreign policy issues, the trade issues, uh, again, to do a trade deal, TPP, they worked on for five years. It was a horrific trade deal. Um, and, and USMCA got done in about a year. 
I mean, you know, and then it took another year to get it through Congress. But uh, China, you know, everyone's been talking about China. The president got it done. The Middle East, the president was the first president to get Israel to agree to these historic concessions that maybe make something that's impossible possible. Um, I look at every day what the president's done with the economy. So this isn't happening because you have a bunch of disgruntled people running around. When the president has bad people, he moves them out, and then he's able to attract tremendous people. And when I look around the administration, uh, the White House, the cabinet, I think that uh, the people we have now are spectacular. I feel honored every day to be able to work with them. And I really believe we're getting a lot of things done and we're getting better and better at this every day. And I, I'll just say this, which is that uh, the president is is very focused. He's um, uh, He really does not, he's not somebody who's taking political decisions. He's saying what's right or wrong for the country. And as an American, whether you voted for the president or you didn't vote for him, I think you could be very proud that you have a president who shows up every day at work trying to make the country stronger, make our economy better, make our country richer, and keep our country safe. When we come back, more of my interview with the senior advisor to the president, Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner, you've been involved in a lot of the trade negotiations. First, let's talk about the, the one with Mexico and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, the former trade representative for the last Republican president, George uh, Robert Zelik, mm-hmm. Bush's trade representative, wrote a long op-ed in the Wall Street Journal explaining why this was actually a very, I think it would be fair to say it was a bad deal, that it actually, you know, in many ways added conditions that were going to reduce growth, reduce uh, the free, uh, uh, free flow of goods and, and capital. Uh, Pat Toomey, conservative Republican senator, uh, issued a statement that said this would be the first trade agreement in the history of the republic that is designed to diminish trade. Um, so that's two very prominent Republicans who have been involved in trade mm-hmm. who think that the net effect of the deal you negotiated is actually to diminish trade, which means diminish GDP. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer all the different things you said. But first of all, the vote, it got 89 votes in the Senate, which is pretty unheard of, uh, which shows that there's a wide swath of popularity to this deal. You have the farmers endorsing it. You have labor endorsing it. You have manufacturers endorsing it. You had a wide range of endorsements from all over the spectrum that you don't, that you don't usually get. Look, I was not involved in trade uh, globally as my previous life. And I got involved in this. Uh, President Trump had a very radical view of trade from what the conventional Republican thinking was. People like Pat Toomey or Zelig, uh, they had a different Republican doctrine for what it was. President Trump's trade policy is how do you protect the American worker? How do you protect the American economy? Uh, I've become more and more of a believer now that I've had to negotiate on these issues that the president's instincts on trade are 100 percent right. Uh, If deficits don't matter, then why is it that every country I deal with doesn't want to have one? But the the trade deficit has gone up under President Trump. It hasn't gone down. Because our economy is growing. The dollar is very strong. But you're just contradicting yourself. Then then it's a good thing. No, that the trade deficit went up. But that's but there's structural things. Over time, you want to reduce the trade deficit. A trade deficit is a transfer of wealth. That's what the president believes, and I do believe that as well. But what I'll but say the is the fact that it's increased under his administration is a sign of strength. Well, the rest of the world is there is growing much less. America has been outpacing the world. We're at historically low unemployment, and the dollar is very strong. Our interest rates are higher, and that's been. Finished. But let's go back yeah. to the trade stuff. With regard to this deal, what's so spectacular about this deal is, first of all, it modernizes all of our trade policies. It had great chapters on digital trade. 
you know, all, all the technology. But the most important things that it does is it, it protects American manufacturing. It changes the rules for cars. Under TPP, you could have made 90% of the car outside of North America and shipped it in with no tariff. Now, 75% of the car has to be made in North America, with a lot of it being high-dollar components, which protects the auto manufacturers in Michigan, Ohio, all these different places. But what I will say is that when a lot of these trade deals were done, NAFTA and China joining the WTO, we had about 70,000 factories that left America and closed down since then. A lot of the problems we face in our society, so the benefits of globalization were distributed. The cost of a T-shirt went down for everybody, but the cost became very concentrated. So you would have a lot of these towns where the factory would get, uh, would get closed because the product line would get shipped overseas. A lot of these communities became hollowed out economically because of these irresponsible trade policies and no, no way to transition workers who are in these uh, situations to better different jobs as the economy evolves. So uh, I do think that President Trump says all the time the era of economic surrender is over. And I think that this trade deal with nine, 89 votes in the Senate is being praised as one of the greatest trade deals of all time. It's the largest trade deal in the history of the world at $1.3 trillion a year of trade. And it will add about a half a point of GDP to America's economy a year, bring about 200,000 jobs to America, maybe even as much as 500,000 jobs. So uh, we think it's, a, it's an excellent trade deal. And many people, other than those two people, I guess, have said so. Jared Kushner, pleasure to have you on. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Fred. It's an honor to be with you. Pleasure. You. Next on GPS, there have long been fakes in the worlds of fashion and art and more. But now we have the world of deep fakes, where people can be made to appear to say things they never said. We'll get into the deep dangers and solutions. Now for our What in the World segment. These days, it's hard enough to believe what you hear. It turns out it was probably the largest audience ever to watch an inauguration address. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? Without having to worry about doubting what you see. But that's just the risk posed by deep fakes. Videos created using artificial intelligence that can make you believe that what's fake is actually real. President Trump is a total and complete Like this video, which is a deep fake created by BuzzFeed and the filmmaker Jordan Peele in 2018 to raise awareness about disinformation. Or this fake video of the former Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi by a satirical television show depicting him denouncing political opponents, including current Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti. So how do you make these increasingly convincing videos? They rely on machine learning, algorithms that process reams of video or audio from, say, a public official or an actor to create something entirely new. There's also cheap fakes, which are altered without using AI, like this viral video of Nancy Pelosi, whose speech was slowed down to make it seem like she was slurring her words. The videos are evolving rapidly and becoming more and more lifelike and endorse my worthy opponent, the Right Honourable Jeremy Corbyn, to be Prime Minister. It's easy to imagine what could happen if this technology were in the wrong hands. As the Boston University law professor Danielle Citron noted in testimony to the House of Representatives, deep fakes already proliferate online. One report found that 96% of these are non-consensual pornography. Citron asked the lawmakers to imagine a deepfake coming out on the eve of the 2020 election, irreparably damaging a political candidate. Or imagine a fake video purportedly from a CEO trashing his own company designed to cause that company's stock to crash 
even for a few hours. A world rife with deep fakes creates so many possibilities for confusion and deception. Imagine if President Trump had dismissed the Access Hollywood tape as a deep fake. Do you have any doubt that his supporters would have lined up behind him and believed that it had been artificially created? The lesson is very clearly illustrated in the African nation of Gabon, of all places. It's been run by the same autocratic dynasty for more than five decades, first by Omar Bongo, then by his son Ali, the current president. In late 2018, Ali Bongo stopped making public appearances. Rumors flew about the state of his health. Eventually, the government announced he'd had a stroke. Then, as Radiolab reported in a fascinating recent episode, that December, Ali Bongo appeared in a national address to ring in the new year. Or did he? Viewers pointed out something strange and stilted in the address. His head moved strangely. He barely blinked. As Radiolab reported, a political opponent to Bongo and a web of activists proclaimed the address a deep fake. And some suggested Bongo was actually dead. And this rumor seemed to have very real consequences. Days after the address, military officials attempted a coup. In the end, they didn't succeed. And experts have said that they had no evidence that the New Year's address was fake. But that didn't really matter. The mere existence of deep fakes and well-timed suggestions from activists and a political opponent made people doubt what they saw. Deepfakes can't be eradicated, but there are ways to curtail their spread. Facebook recently announced that it would ban most deepfakes from its website, but that ban is already being criticized for not going far enough. That Pelosi video, for instance, was allowed to stay. The Defense Department has also invested in technology to detect deepfakes quickly. One solution to the deepfakes problem is the same as the remedy for the spread of any other kind of misinformation. Congress should make social media companies responsible for the content posted on their platforms, which would pressure them to stop the dissemination of deepfakes. It won't solve the issue, but it will ensure that these fakes won't spread so wildly. Like many troubling trends in technology, deepfakes open up a Pandora's box that can't be closed. But the problem can be perhaps managed and controlled better. Next on GPS... Why is America so polarized? Ezra Klein answers the big question very well when we come back. Earlier in the show, I told you about Ezra Klein's terrific new book, Why We're Polarized. I'm fascinated by the subject, so I wanted to dig in deeper with the author. Ezra is the co-founder and editor-at-large of the news organization, Vox. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So... At heart, if we're trying to understand why we are so polarized, what you say is it's because we like to think in terms of groups. We like to sort ourselves into groups and we like to discriminate against other groups. Tell the story of this of this um, uh, scholar who was a, a Holocaust survivor who does a who does a, 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 um, a kind of experiment to try to make this point. This story, I think, is remarkable. So this guy's name is Henry Toshvel. He's a Polish Jew born, I believe, in the 1920s. He emigrates to France in the 1930s because he can't go to university in Poland because he's Jewish. So he emigrates to France. He becomes part of World War II. He's captured by Germans and put into a prisoner of war camp. And he's understood, and this is so important to his life and the future of social psychology, as a French prisoner of war. 
If he'd been understood as a Polish Jew, he would have been killed. When the war is over, he's released, and his whole family has been killed in the Holocaust. And so he becomes obsessed with the question of group identity. How do people sort into groups? How do we understand that somebody else is part of a group that is not ours? And what happens to us? How do we act once that takes hold? So he creates a set of studies that are now known as a minimal group paradigm studies. And in some ways, for reasons I'll show, it's an ironic name. He grabs a bunch of boys from the same school, 64, and has them come in and says, we need to uh, have you do just a quick experiment. Look at this screen. How many dots do you think are on it? So they say how many dots, and then researchers score their work. And then they say, you know, while you're here, we'd like to do a study totally different from that one, no relationship, but just for ease of use, we're going to separate you into the groups that overestimated the number of dots and underestimated. In truth, by the way, this is false or randomly sorted. And so then the next experiment is a money allocation study. And immediately, these boys who are similar to each other, know each other, go to the same school, and have been separated based on one, a meaningless characteristic, dot estimation that is not even true, begin discriminating against each other. They give more money to people in the group. He then and to explain, they get no, they no, get no money. money. So the money <laughs> is being no given money. to other people. To other people. And yet they give more to their group, exactly. which is a, a, a meaningless and group. What is striking about this study is this was supposed to be underneath the line of group behavior. What Tajfel wanted to do was begin adding and adding and adding group dynamics to figure out when group psychology would take hold. He couldn't find something small enough that it wouldn't do it at some level. So this was meant to be his sort of control. Yes, exactly. Where you had where people paid no attention to the groups because they were so random and, and unimportant. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even there, even there, you found that people... Even that minimal. This study is replicated so tell a you? bunch what, of different times. It, it tells you that human beings, what? We sort naturally and are psychologically tuned to see group differences between ourselves and others. And when they take hold, and this is one of Tajfel's key insights that, again, has been replicated again and again, is that once group psychology takes hold, we naturally discriminate and feel hostility and competition towards members of other groups. And if you don't believe all the social science mumbo-jumbo, just look at sports. I grew up in outside of Los Angeles. We had the Rams, and they left. I'm very comfortable with the idea that players go where the best money is, teams go where the stadium tax breaks are, and yet we are so attached to the outcomes of these games that for us don't mean all that much materially that we will riot, burn cities, our emotional highs go up and down. That's because sports key on this deep sense of group psychology. Now move this over to politics, where the groups are more firm, the stakes are much higher, even life or death, and you can begin to see how much this is playing with a very primal part of our psyches. So one of the things to understand about politics is it's activating certain identities, and much more to the point, collections of identities simultaneously. That is a very powerful effect on our behavior. And you say that white identity has been activated in the last five or six years. Why? Not just in the last five or six years, but very powerfully in this era. So something to know about the context of American politics now is we're in this period of very rapid demographic change. We are about 20 years-ish from becoming a majority-minority country racially. Um, We've gone from having 4% of the country be foreign-born in the 1970s to about 14.5% now. That's moving towards a record. And we are on our way again in about the 2040s to the religiously unaffiliated becoming the single largest religious group in America. So we're in this period of a lot of racial, religious, and demographic change. And among other things, that is activated in a deeper way than is normally true or has normally been true in our politics, white identity. I want to be very clear. That isn't to say white identity has not been powerful in American politics. It's 
been so powerful it could be taken for granted. But now it feels under threat, and that's changing voting patterns among white Americans. It's changing the axis of political conflict. Donald Trump, what he does in 2016 is he goes into the Republican Party and he says the primary axis of political conflict should not be do you want to cut Medicaid or Medicare? It should not be do you want to raise or lower taxes? It should be how do you feel about this country getting browner, about immigrants coming into this country? How do you feel about that? And a lot of people in the Republican base say, you're right, that is the thing that I feel most centrally. It's much easier for us to feel those kinds of stakes than have a debate over whether or not we should do health care in this way or that. Um, the two takeaways I, I, that are very um, immediate that I got from the book are the Democrats need to understand when they try to appeal to people, particularly potentially undecided voters, a lot of it is not a matter of facts and policy analysis. They've got to figure out a way to make those people feel like that, that, that they belong, that they trust them, that there is a kind of identity affinity of some mm-hmm. kind. And secondly, the Democrats have a much harder task because geographically, the way the, the, the country's electoral colleges work, they have to move to the center. The Republicans don't. Those are crucial takeaways. A lot of what we've been talking about here, the psychological roots and foundations of polarization, but a lot of the book is about its its interaction with the political institution and our particular political system. And as you say, Democrats have a particularly hard task here. One is that they need to see identity as a layer of politics. Democrats really like to talk about policy. And you know me and my background. I'm a policy reporter. I come into this because I needed a better explanation for how policy debates move from their positive sum beginnings, where people can imagine a lot of different ways of solving a problem into collapsing into these all-out, zero-sum partisan wars. So Democrats are often not very good at thinking symbolically about policy. In 2016, Hillary Clinton has about 50 policies on her site, none of which people really know and none of which say that much about her, whereas Donald Trump has seven. They None of them make all that much internal sense in terms of how they're constructed, but they say a lot about him. They're symbolic policy communication, and a lot of politics is symbolic communication. But the other point you make is well taken as well. Republicans can win they and are winning in the Senate right now, in the White House, throughout the Supreme Court, with a minority of the population. And each of those places in the relevant elections, they got fewer votes than Democrats. Democrats, if they do not win center-right voters, they do not win power. If they got the 46% of the vote that Donald Trump got in 2016, they wouldn't be president. They would be wiped out in the Electoral College. So Democrats are not able to follow the same strategic incentives as Republicans because Republicans, due to their overrepresentation in rural areas that are amplified in our political system, they have a path to power that does not require quite so much of a popular vote, which, by the way, is a bad thing for our political system. It's good for parties, both of them, to be disciplined by democracy itself. And right now, the Republican Party is not being disciplined by it. Sobering words, though, for the Democrats to listen to and fascinating stuff for all of us. Uh, Ezra Klein, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. And we will be back. East and West, North and South countries all over the globe are once again tuning in to the threat of infectious diseases and their spread in our globalized world. It brings me to my question this week. According to the Global Health Security Index, which of the following nations is most prepared to contain large disease outbreaks? The Netherlands, China, the U.S., or Thailand? The answer to my GPS challenge this week is C. As you might expect, the countries deemed most prepared to contain an outbreak are typically high income. The U.S. is first among them. Alarmingly, the Global Health Security Index report says that International preparedness for epidemics and pandemics is very weak. Only four countries in the world 
have healthcare systems that are most prepared to treat the sick. And considering the billions that outbreaks can cost, the lesson seems to be let's pay the cost now to improve readiness or else we will be paying in money and lives in the future. Last week, in telling you the answer to the question, we mistakenly included Canada on a graphic of nations without paternity leave. New Canadian fathers do indeed get paid leave. Our bad. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.